Is it right for Christians to feel that they've had enough of life to say, I quit? Since they have all the spiritual blessings from heaven in Jesus, can they honestly need more? Well, Elijah was a great man of God who said to God, I have had enough. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the life of Elijah. In today's passage, we're looking at Elijah in a serious low point of his ministry, where he says that he has had enough. Phil, would you say that it's right at any point for Christians to feel or think that they cannot go on any longer with their lives? Well, Mark, even as you ask that question, I can't help but think of somebody who may be listening today who really feels like they're at a place of desperation in life in general or maybe in the Christian life. And on the one hand, I think we need to say it's not pleasing to God to feel like life is not worth living anymore because he's the one who gave us life in the first place. But on the other hand, You know, the ups and downs of life are inevitable. And whatever our desperate situation, we need to go to God with the feelings that we have. And we see that in the Psalms, don't we? Even in the most desperate times, uh, despairing even of life itself, that's a time we need to go to prayer and seek His strength and encouragement and help. And we're going to see in today's message a time when Elijah was in that kind of desperation, really had gone down into the depths of despair. Well, in today's passage, we see quite a transition in Elijah's mentality from past extreme highs to an extreme low. Could you give us some reasons why this might have been? Well, humanly speaking, I think there are a lot of possible reasons. I mean, Elijah was physically very tired at this point. He was all alone, didn't have a lot of fellowship. He had faced the spiritual opposition of the prophets of Baal and behind them, all of the forces of Satan. Humanly speaking, there are a lot of reasons why Elijah might have been at such a low. But I think the important thing for us is to see that even when he reaches the very bottom, when he falls off the mountaintop experience right into the valley of despair, that even then he's turning to the Lord in prayer. And there are things we can learn from his prayer today, how to pray, how not to pray, and things that will help us in our times of discouragement and even desperation. Thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, and listen to God's Word for us today. Elijah has had enough. You can hear it in the plaintive strains of Mendelssohn's Elijah still ringing in our ears. Have such bitter words as these ever been sung before? in this sanctuary. It is enough, O Lord. Now take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I desire to live no longer. Now let me die, for my days are but vanity. It is not well with Elijah's soul. He has had enough. He has descended into the blackness of spiritual despair. And we have been up to the mountaintop with Elijah, up to the top of Mount Carmel to see the fire in the presence of God. Now we go with Elijah down into the depths of despair, down into the wilderness where Elijah is all alone, sitting under a solitary tree. 
I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. As Elijah fades to spiritual black, we must pause a moment to remember that he was once a burning and shining light for the people of God. We must pause to remember that Elijah was the firekeeper in the longhouse. He was a great man of God. Remember Elijah's boldness before the king of Israel. We are turning to 1 Kings chapter 19, but we began our studies with Elijah in chapter 17. Remember there how Elijah marched down from Gilead to Samaria, how he came from the boondocks to the big city to tell King Ahab that there would be no rain in the land. Remember Elijah's faith in the providence of God. Remember how he obeyed God's command to go and live in the Kareth Ravine to be fed by ravens. Remember how he trusted God for daily bread in Zarephath, how the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry day after day. Remember Elijah's faith in the resurrection. Remember how he took the widow's dead son in his arms and stretched himself out over his body and prayed for the boy's life to return to him. Remember Elijah's courage in the face of sin. Remember how he identified Ahab as the real troublemaker in Israel. Remember how he challenged the people of God not to waver between two opinions any longer. Remember Elijah's passion for biblical worship. Remember how he offered the proper sacrifice on the proper altar at the proper time of day to the proper God. Remember Elijah's zeal for righteousness. Remember how he mocked the prophets of Baal and how he put them to death at the Kishon River. Remember most of all Elijah's life of prayer. Remember how he prayed for three and a half years for the rain to be shut up into the heavens. Remember how he prayed kingdom prayer, pleading for the glory of God to be revealed and for the hearts of God's people to be turned back to God. Elijah was a great and godly man. He was among the greatest of the prophets. Little wonder that when Jesus Christ was transfigured on the mountain, Elijah was there beside Moses talking with Jesus. Little wonder that Peter wanted to give honor to Elijah, even to worship him. Elijah is like a spiritual giant to us. Our own spirituality does not begin to measure up to the stature of this man of God. We have never seen such godliness with our own eyes. We have rarely even dreamed about becoming so godly ourselves. And then consider Elijah's humility. Yes, consider Elijah's humility. We might expect a spiritual giant to be at least a little bit proud of his spiritual accomplishments. But 1 Kings chapter 18 ends with a striking demonstration of Elijah's humility. Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. 
God has sent Elijah his rain. The storm clouds have gathered over the Mediterranean Sea. And while big black thunderheads billow over Mount Carmel, Elijah receives the power of the Lord. He hitches up his robes and he runs 18 miles down to Jezreel ahead of a horse and chariot. Now the point of this story is not that Elijah was a great all-around athlete, although perhaps he was. The point of this story is not that Elijah was endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit, although he certainly was. The point of this story is not even that Elijah got to Jezreel first, as if Elijah and Ahab were in some sort of race. No, for Elijah to run ahead of Ahab was to identify himself as one of the king's servants. Elijah ran ahead of King Ahab as one of his footmen or heralds or outrunners. In the ancient Near Eastern world, kings were always preceded by a company of foot servants to herald their approach. To run ahead of a royal person was to indicate subservience to that royalty. And so in Esther chapter 6, for example, Mordecai is led about the streets of Susa on a royal horse wearing a royal crest. And Prince Haman is compelled to lead Mordecai, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. This is a humiliation for Haman, because the one who goes ahead of royalty is in the place of subservience. And in the same way, Elijah submitted himself to the governing authority of King Ahab by running ahead of him to Jezreel. Elijah's zeal for the king of kings demanded respect for the king of Israel. There was a humility about Elijah's boldness. Now fade to black. See what this great, godly, humble man of God has become. You have seen him at his best. Now come and see him at his worst. He is sitting alone in the wilderness under a broom tree. He has run away from Jezebel, run away from the people of God, run away from his calling, run away from it all. And it happened like this. They all got to Jezreel, and Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Now, wait a second. Did you catch what Ahab said? Can you see how blind he is? Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, many of you were there on Mount Carmel in weeks past. Is that the way it happened? Was it all Elijah's doing? Not even close. Even Ahab should be telling Jezebel everything the Lord God had done, not everything Elijah had done. I suppose King Ahab was the consummate politician, He's a chameleon. He changes with the political winds. When he is up on the mountain, he is ready to believe in the God of Israel, ready to do whatever Elijah says needs to be done with the prophets of Baal. But when he gets back home, he has Jezebel to deal with. And we can see who drives the chariot in this family. Ahab is afraid of his wife. He is very careful to pin the blame for everything that has happened to the prophets of Baal on Elijah. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, unless you get out of town by sundown, Elijah, you're a dead man. I do not know why Jezebel did not have Elijah killed then and there. Perhaps she was shrewd enough to sense his popularity. Very likely she was cunning enough to realize that the best way to turn Elijah's victory into a defeat, the best way to destroy God's credibility altogether, was to scare his prophet away. And if that's the case, Jezebel's strategy worked even better than she had hoped. And after everything else we have seen Elijah say and do, we are not at all prepared for what he does next. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Elijah was just as afraid of Jezebel as Ahab was. He ran away from Jezreel even faster than he had run to it. Shall we praise Elijah for this? Asks Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator. We praise him not. Where was the courage with which he had lately confronted Ahab and all the prophets of Baal? Nay, which kept him by his sacrifice when the fire of God fell upon it. He that stood undaunted in the midst of the terrors both of heaven and earth trembles at the impotent menaces of a proud, passionate woman. Great faith is not always alike strong. Elijah's faith had been chased out by fear. The scripture says that he ran for his life. There can be no doubt about his motives for doing so. You can run a long way when you are running to save your neck. Ninety miles Elijah ran, all the way down to Beersheba in the south, and then another day's journey further into the desert. He was running all the way out of Jezebel's kingdom, running himself almost to death. He ran and he ran and he ran, and then he threw himself down under a broom tree, and then he prayed. Elijah, we know, was a man of prayer, So how is this for a prayer? I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. This is not exactly kingdom prayer, is it? But notice that even at this point of absolute desperation, Elijah prayed. I have had enough, Lord. He said, he prayed that he might die. Elijah did not take his own life. He continued to acknowledge that God is the Lord of life and that only he has the right to take a life. Men of God do not kill themselves. G.K. Chesterton observed that not only is suicide a sin, it is the sin. It is the ultimate and absolute evil. The refusal to take an interest in existence, the refusal to take the oath of loyalty to life. The man who kills a man kills a man. The man who kills himself kills all men. As far as he is concerned, he wipes out the whole world. Men of God do not kill themselves, but apparently they do sometimes pray for death. Moses asked God to put him to death right then and there. 
Job wished that he had never been born. Jeremiah cursed the day he was born. Jonah asked God to take away his life because it was better for him to die than to live. Men of God sometimes long for death, but when they long for death, they do not kill themselves. They pray to the God who lives. They take their despair to the place where God rules. And what Elijah tells God when he goes to that place is that he has had enough. The prophet of God is suicidal. And I suppose his cry of despair sounds something like the cry of despair heard in the recent British film entitled Train Spotting. Train Spotting is becoming something of a cult classic among Generation Xers because it offers a raw view of the meaningless of the human condition. Meaninglessness. Listen to the lead character's philosophy of life, which I have edited for profanity. Choose life. Choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a big television, choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, choose rotting away at the end of it all, in a miserable home, nothing more than an embarrassment to the selfish brats you've spawned to replace yourself. But why would I want to do a thing like that? I choose not to choose life. I chose something else. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got heroin? End quote. That is how Elijah felt. He never watched TV game shows and he never did heroin, but this is how he felt. He was choosing not to choose life. He was choosing something else and there were no reasons. In our last study, we saw that Elijah was like the firekeeper in the longhouse, keeping the home fires burning for the people of God. Well, sometimes firekeepers go down in flames. Sometimes firekeepers get burned out. Sometimes firekeepers have had enough. This experience of Elijah challenges us not to get the wrong idea about Christianity. Many people still have the wrong idea about Christianity. They have the idea that if you trust Jesus, all your troubles will be over. If you really trust in Jesus, he will give you a big car. If you really trust in Jesus, he will take care of your weight problem. If you really trust in Jesus, he will take away the temptation to homosexual sin. If you really trust in Jesus, he will find you a mate. Now, those are wrong ideas about Christianity. I suppose that people have those wrong ideas because the American church still gets big doses of the health and wealth gospel. The health and wealth gospel goes something like this. Name it and claim it. That's what faith's all about. You can have what you want if you just have no doubt. So make out your wish list and keep on believing, and you will find yourself perpetually receiving. Now, if that is the gospel you believe, let me give you a big dose of reality. Salvation in Jesus Christ does not bring an end to life's troubles. Sometimes they are just beginning. Sometimes Christians hurt. Sometimes Christians get discouraged. 
Sometimes Christians get depressed. Sometimes Christians want to run away from it all. Sometimes they are afraid. Sometimes they quit in the middle of their jobs. Sometimes they abandon their callings. Sometimes Christians are suicidal. And not just run-of-the-mill Christians. Christian leaders get discouraged, are afraid, quit, are suicidal. What the Scripture says in the book of James is really true. Elijah was a man just like us. When we see Elijah under the broom tree, we see what a believer amounts to in his or her own strength. Not very much. With the power of the Lord, Elijah was the best and bravest of men. In the words of the Apostle Paul, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Without the power of the Lord, he was powerless, a complete coward. In the words of Jesus Christ, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, Elijah had his treasure in a jar of clay in order to show that his all-surpassing glory was from God and not from himself. Now, it is not hard to come up with explanations for Elijah's depression. There are probably at least a dozen good reasons that he is suicidal. First, fatigue. Elijah is exhausted. King Ahab went to Carmel to eat and to drink, the Scripture says, but not Elijah. He spent his time on the mountain in prayer. And then he ran 18 miles to Jezreel and then ran for his life some 90 miles to Beersheba in the south. And after he had run all the way to Mount Horeb, he had run 300 miles in all. That's like running from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh in August. Great athlete though he was, Elijah was on the verge of complete physical collapse. And a tired Christian is a vulnerable Christian. Second, isolation. Christians cannot survive without the communion of the saints. Elijah has been virtually alone for these three years. He has had very little human contact at all, let alone intimate fellowship with like-minded believers. Next, spiritual opposition. Elijah stood against all the prophets of Baal, and even when he had overcome them, he was opposed by Jezebel, that mistress of Satan. Elijah was under spiritual attack, and that is bound to bring a believer to the point of discouragement. Here's another explanation for Elijah's depression, the normal rhythms of human emotion. Elijah had just experienced the ultimate spiritual high. He had just had the ultimate mountaintop experience. He had just been in the presence of the living God up on the mountain in fire and rain. Now he has come back down to earth hard. And he is a blue believer. And that is no surprise. You cannot live the Christian life on sheer emotion. Add to Elijah's emotional fragility the feeling of emptiness that often follows ministering in the name of God. When Elijah was up on the mountain, the strength of the Lord surged through every fiber of his body. And now that vessel is empty. There's something draining about being a conduit for the Word of God. And I can imagine that preachers understand Elijah's depression most of all. 
especially on Monday morning. And then what about dashed expectations? Very likely Elijah went to Jezreel in full confidence that all Israel would turn back to God. But then meeting Jezebel was like a slap in the face. Although he had won the battle, he had not yet won the war, and his expectations were dashed. Along with Elijah's shattered expectations went the very natural response of fear. The wording of verse 3 in chapter 19 is striking. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. More accurately, Elijah saw and ran for his life. In that moment when he was gripped with fear, in that moment when his life passed before his very eyes, in that moment when he could see that his number was up, Elijah's gaze was taken off the Lord. Then it was fixed squarely on his troubles. And then on top of everything else, guilt. Yes, guilt. Elijah was a traitor to the Lord's cause. He was absent without leave. He had run off in his own direction. He had deserted his post in the middle of the battle. He had abandoned his divine calling right at the crucial moment when the spiritual condition of the whole nation was still hanging in the balance. And he had failed in that one area of his life that was his greatest spiritual strength, bold faith. And so Elijah's self-condemnation was just. I am no better than my ancestors. No wonder Elijah had had enough. Many factors contributed to his spiritual depression. And of course, there are simple remedies for many of these. If you are struggling with spiritual depression this morning, identify its causes as clearly as you can and then apply what is the obvious remedy. If you are tired, get some vigorous exercise and then get some rest. If your body is breaking down, start eating balanced meals. If you are isolated, do not leave the church this morning without confiding in a Christian friend. If you are under spiritual attack, gather others to pray for you for your spiritual protection. If you are guilty, confess your sins to God fully and freely. If you are obsessed with your troubles, fix your gaze upon Jesus. But we need to see that Elijah had a deeper problem that went beyond these simple remedies. There is another reason for Elijah's depression. And it is a reason that the commentators seem to have overlooked in this passage. And I think it is a reason that is more important than all the others put together. Elijah was suicidal because he needed a savior. I want you to imagine for a moment that your Bible only goes up to 1 Kings 18. If you only had the first 500 pages or so of the Bible, which is about what Elijah had, what would you conclude about the identity of Elijah? Where would you place Elijah in the history of redemption if this is all the history that you had? Well, it would be tempting to conclude that Elijah must be God's chosen prophet, with a capital P. It would be easy to think 
that Elijah must be God's promised Savior, the Savior who was to come. Back in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, God promised Moses that he would send a second Moses to the people of God. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. So the people of God always looked for that prophet who was to come, that great prophet from among the brothers. And Elijah sure seems like a good candidate. He can shut the rain up in the heavens. He can bring manna to those who are without bread. He can raise the dead. He can pray the glorious fire of God's presence down to the people of God. He can turn the hearts of God's people back to God. Could it be that Elijah is the prophet like Moses? Could he be the promised Savior who will save his people from their sins? No, Elijah is not the Savior. No, Elijah is not the prophet. No, Elijah will not save his people from their sins. We find in 1 Kings 19, verse 4, the admission of his failure to be that prophet. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Literally, I am no better than my fathers. And Elijah is not speaking about his natural father and grandfather among the Tishbites. Rather, he is speaking about his spiritual fathers among the prophets of Israel. He is no better than any of the rest of the prophets. Like every last one of them, he is a sinner. And the reason that Elijah is depressed above all other reasons The reason that he admits that he is no better than his fathers is because he knows that what the people of God need most of all, what he himself needs most of all, is a prophet who is better than his fathers. He knows that the people of God need a Savior who will not sin, a Savior who will not desert them, a Savior who will not abandon His divine calling, a Savior who will not flinch in the face of death. And the depressing reality is that Elijah is no better than his fathers. He is no better than Moses. He is no better than the rest of the prophets. Like all the rest, he is a sinner in need of a Savior. And his suicidal depression is a desperate plea for that Savior. Elijah will meet the Savior. Elijah will meet the prophet who is better than his fathers. Elijah will meet the Messiah who will save his people from their sins. He will meet Jesus Christ. And we know that he will meet Jesus Christ because the Scripture records how Elijah talked with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But what we need to see this morning is that even now, even while Elijah sits under the broom tree, he receives the grace of God, the grace of God which would be revealed in Jesus Christ. Elijah may be suicidal, but God still loves him. See how tenderly he cares for Elijah. 
F.B. Meyer writes how God's eye followed with tender pity every step of Elijah's flight across the hills of Samaria. He did not love him less than when he stood elate with victory hard by the burning sacrifice. And his love assumed, if possible, a tenderer, gentler aspect as he stooped over him whilst he slept. As a shepherd tracks the wandering sheep from the fold to the wild mountain pass, where eagles sailing in narrowing circles watch its faltering steps, so did the love of God come upon Elijah as worn in body by long fatigue and in spirit by the fierce war of passion, he lay and slept under the juniper tree. When Elijah has had enough, he discovers that God's grace is more than enough. You see, it is God's grace to send an angel to minister to Elijah. When Elijah was strong in faith and strong in prayer, it was enough for him to receive bread and meat from the beaks of ravens. But now, now that he is alone, now that he is afraid, now that he is discouraged and depressed, God sends to him an angel. God sends him an angel who can touch him with a physical touch and speak to him in an audible voice. God has countless means at his disposal to care for our needs, and it is his usual practice to give us what we need in the way that we need it. It is also God's grace to give Elijah the rest that he needs. God leaves his prophet to sleep under the broom tree, and after he eats, to sleep again. When we see Elijah asleep under the broom tree, we are reminded of the promise of Psalm 127. The Lord grants sleep to those he loves. We are reminded also of the promise of Isaiah 40. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Furthermore, it is God's grace to give Elijah his daily bread. How is this for room service? A cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. Then the angel of the Lord returns to bring Elijah seconds. And best of all, it is God's grace to give Elijah all these things and not to rebuke him. God treats Elijah with mercy rather than justice. Once Elijah had run away from his calling, he had no claim on the love of God. And yet there is not one word of rebuke in this passage. Now later, later when Elijah gets to Mount Horeb, God will straighten him out about a few things. But not yet. Elijah rages against the dispensations of God. He holds his egotistical little pity party under the tree. He prays the most offensive prayer that a human being can pray to the Lord and giver of life, the prayer for his life to be taken away. Elijah does all that, and yet all God says is, get up and eat. Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. This is the grace of God for Elijah. And we see in God's 
grace to Elijah in these various manifestations of the grace of God, the pattern of the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ that we find rest for our souls. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And it is in Jesus Christ that we receive living bread and living water. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And it is in Jesus Christ that we find forgiveness for our sins and no rebuke. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wonder if you have had enough. It may be that you have had enough. It may be that you are up to the tips of your eyebrows in the troubles of life and you have had enough. But if you have had enough, come and see the grace of God That same grace of God that was revealed to Elijah under the broom tree. God hears your prayer. He knows that you have had enough, and He still loves you. He still offers you rest. He still offers you living bread and living water. He still offers you forgiveness for all your sins. And if you go to Jesus Christ when you have had enough, you find that He is more than enough. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise that we have in Jesus Christ everything we need. And we bring before you this morning our discouragement, our physical infirmities, our depression, all our frailties and weaknesses in the face of spiritual opposition and the troubles of life. We bring before you all our sins. And we ask that you would forgive us and heal us and give us rest and refreshment. We know that it really is true that Jesus Christ is all we need because we read it in the Scriptures. And we ask that you would prove that that is the case in our own experience. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every Last Word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. 
For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.